This is Fred Shankelberg, and today we're going to talk a little bit about design for reliability. Well, you know, what we're talking about is what we've commonly defined as reliability as a, a function with a probability of success operating over some duration in some known environment. From our customer's point of view, it just works. And if it doesn't work, then we say it's not reliable. Now, of course, a piece that's missing from there is their expectations. And what is it that we're trying to design and specify and create? But underlying all of this is, well, how do we go about doing this? Why do we create a program called Design for Reliability or Design for Manufacturing or Design for Sustainability or Design for whatever? It's the how and why and what are the mechanisms that make this work is not so much just a list of tools. Uh, there's plenty of books and services and, and, uh, and items out there that are called Design for Reliability, and they do little more than list a bunch of activities. I don't think that's terribly useful because in some circumstances, a particular task or, to, or activity makes perfect sense and adds a lot of value. In other cases, it's a waste of time. And so I think design for reliability really needs to focus on that difference between just doing a set of tools and then focusing on why we're doing a particular activity or tool. What difference does it make? And so many of you have heard me talk about this idea or this concept that reliability, it's the the designed in reliability of an item is occurs during all of those decisions at each and every one of those decisions that lead up to a product being designed and manufactured and distributed. It's when I balance, should I buy from vendor A or vendor B? Now we might think of cost or ability to deliver the volume we need, uh, the size, fit, form, and function of it all of those kinds of aspects on it, yet no two components, if they're manufactured in different places with different processes or recipes or whatever, um, they will have differences in their ability to withstand your particular set of circumstances and environments and, and use conditions. So making that decision, including the idea of which one is going to give us a reliable solution is what I mean by this occurs at the point of decision. Reliability engineering as an individual or as a team rarely gets involved with every one of those decisions. And, and I would argue probably doesn't belong in all of those decisions. The idea of a design for reliability program is that we're going to enable reliability and its attributes to be considered at all of those points of decision. And I think that's the key uh, summary of the way I think of DFR. And, and in large part, then, what is our role as a, a reliability engineer or as a, a team of engineers? Now, what I'm really getting at here is that these decisions don't happen in a vacuum, right? We have uh, priorities and, and organizational cultures that basically give us guidelines or, or rules to follow as we make various decisions. If the, well, let me, let me expand on this a little bit. So, if we're going to do a uh, design for reliability program, one, it usually means the organization is, is, is expressly paying attention to reliability. And, and that brings just some attention to it, whether or not you do anything specifically about it, but it brings in activities and helps people 
understand that they can ask questions, they can balance off the benefits or pros and cons of different decisions in relationship to its eventual performance in the field. That there are organizations that have a culture that will just say, well, we're going to do design for reliability, but then only pay attention to and ask about and reward decisions that actually reduce the bill of material cost or increase profitability uh, in the short term or enable us to ship the, to market on time on a specific target date. The organization probably in the one you work in probably already has a set of focus or, or priorities. And there's probably some um, discussion about, well, how does that evolve or change over time? Or how do we, what is the specific focus for this program? It might be a cost reduction program. And if you're designing a new platform, it may be based on creating a certain set of functionality is the primary focus of it. And the idea though, is that reliability occurs whether or not we're deliberately thinking about it or talking about it. Uh, it can be enhanced when we do. And when we have the set of tools and, and elements in place that allow us to balance the many other priorities that are out there. For example, if we're really after reducing the cost, but we ignore warranty, as one of the costs of this product, then it doesn't matter how much you talk about design for reliability, uh, we'll probably reduce costs at the expense of reliability performance and increasing the warranty returns. So it's gotta be part of the larger organization and, and how decisions are made. And also with enough information that you can appropriately balance out making the appropriate decision between cost and reliability, for example. Now, part of this in, in a DFR program is one, well, what's your target? What, what are you trying to do? And is there feedback, right? If you're really your only meaningful feedback is that the customers are complaining or, or there's higher expected than expected failure rates, well, that should be pretty obvious that you need to change something about how you develop the program or the product so that you can get the necessary feedback as you go through. Are you on target, not only for cost and shipping on time, but for hitting your reliability performance targets? Now, that cultures in my experience and from when we put it up into a reliability maturity matrix there's reactive organizations where there's firefighting and and responding to failures as they occur and not really thinking through those decisions during the design process is to the impact whereas a proactive organization tends to spend more time under understanding the risks and, and uncertainties and then taking steps and activities to reduce that uncertainty, to find the right answers to those questions. And then when their products go to the field, there's, they're performing as expected. They get a failure rate that is where they expect it to be. And it, it's not gonna be zero, but the, it will be low enough that it's acceptable to both to the organization for profitability points of view, but also to the customer that it's, um, yeah, failures do happen, but there's not failing every time you get a new product and to replace the previous one. You know, failing three, four, five times in a row, if you have a patient customer, uh, might be okay, but that usually doesn't lead to good results. So anyway, the co basic concept here during design and development is that it the decisions that are made during the development process, the design and development process, lead to the eventual reliability of the item that you're putting together. Um, you've heard me say it before, as manufacturing can only make it worse, but we'll talk about that in a moment. The idea, though, is that you can be deliberate about it, and you can be deliberate where you're getting feedback, and you can incorporate not just the individual in the moment, the uh, minor decisions, but the philosophy, the approach 
is such that we're going to invest in understanding the pros and cons of these decisions, including pretty good information about the reliability uh, aspects of that decision. And to that, I'm suggesting that we're a proactive organization. Now, the management team, this is the broader picture of it, is, you know, they, they set the priorities, they set the direction for the development program. But one of the key questions is, well, where are we going? What is the, where are we going to, what is the position of this product in the market? Is it going to be the most reliable? Is it going to be middle of the road? Is it going to be low cost and inexpensive, but not as reliable? Or is it some other mixture? Or what is it we're trying to do? And then from there, does that translate into meaningful reliability goals and objectives for individual programs and projects that we're working on? And then also, is there a risk management? Now, risk management might include FMEAs during your development process, a design FMEA, but there's also the enterprise level risk management. What if we don't hit our targets? How is that going to affect our financials? How is that going to expect, impact our position in the market? How is that going to um, enhance or create an opening for um, competitors to take market share? But also on the program side, is there a reliability or a design for reliability, a design FMEA in progress or, or some other similar tool to understand what do we know and don't know, and then how are we prioritizing getting the right information so that we can be proactive in our program. Uh, from a management point of view, an easy way to tell if it's a reactive or proactive uh, type of a stance is that really the only time they're involved, they being the management team, is when a customer is complaining about a product. Now we have to get all, all the resources on board and go fix it. Well, that's obviously reactive. If they're involved early in the program to make sure that we have the resources and investment to create a reliable product, well, that hints more that they're in the proactive stance if that actually occurs. Um, so it's, it's easy to see it, it within an organization, which kind of culture it is, but it, if we're going to say we're going to do design for reliability, that really does mean that the management team is committed to us allowing the work and effort to create a reliable product by design um, actually gets the funding and support. It doesn't do any good to say, oh, we're going to do um, design for reliability, but you have to reduce the cost by half. And that's the only thing I'm going to talk about. Well, that obviously sends us a mixed message or a very clear message is to say that DFR is not the priority and not, not something we're going to work on. It has to be aligned and, and balanced with all the other priorities in an appropriate way with an investment to get the appropriate amount of information that enable the management team and the development team to make the appropriate decisions. And then it's not just there, right? The uh, marketing team or product development uh, in the concept phase, you know, we need to understand what customers actually want. What is that set of functions that we're going to specify, right? But it also involves, well, what is this product going to promise? What is those? What are those expectations? So this may be in marketing or in sales, is and and how we talk about the product uh, as we try to get customer feedback or or launch or advertise the product. How does that relate to what we're actually trying to achieve? Right. Um, when I years ago there was a commercial for a water resistant. Um, uh, phone. I think it was one of the Samsung phones. And they showed some famous person walking through a room pouring champagne onto the phone. And like, okay, now I wonder if that was in the design spec that it could withstand a, a full magnum bottle of champagne being poured onto it. I mean, was that expect that was that conveying that, um, 
it can withstand this acidic type of moisture with uh, carbonation in it and all of the sugars and everything else. Did we actually mean to set that expectation? Not that we really expected our customers to do that, but um, if there was a disconnect there between how the marketing team decided to uh, portray this moisture resistance or water resistance feature, um, you know, spraying it with a small mist, misting bottle for uh, spray misters, for example, maybe that's what we ex designed it to, but pouring it, uh, pouring running water or, or alcohol onto it, eh, maybe that's a little bit more aggressive than we expected. So are we setting the appropriate expectation of how resistant it really is? Now, I never did know how well their phones did. I wasn't willing to buy one and just go pour a bunch of stuff on it and see what happens. But I, I wonder if the design team was cringing when they saw that, that commercial or we're going, yeah, that should work or not. It's getting those things in alignment helps your customers get the appropriate expectations so that when they actually hit their hands on your product, it performs as it was expected to perform or better. Now, the same goes for you know, the, the procurement group. And many of you know that I pick on the procurement folks a lot of times. And in my experiences, they tend to focus on cost and with little regard to the reliability performance until there's an emergency, then they, they want to get involved because they know where the factory is. They've not talked to these people. The idea is, is to have those discussions about what will fail and when will it fail and how do you know long before you select that particular source for the materials that you're using. It's not okay to only ask those questions when you have a failure. That's obviously reactive kind of picture. Design for reliability includes all of those components and materials that we're putting into the product. So asking those questions beyond cost and deliverable uh, and delivery volumes is we need to ask basic questions about how will this work within our expected environment and use conditions, right? Now, the, the vendors may not be able to answer that, but if you phrase it in a way that talks about the environment and frequency of use and stresses that it'll see, they may be able to steer us in the right direction to this is a product that will perform better. And here's the reasons, here's the failure mechanisms you need to be careful about. And then, and then manufacturing and, and uh, transport and delivery, warehousing, all those parts of it. It's um, manufacturing has its own set of challenges of trying to make, create a product that meets the design requirements uh, over and over again. The best they can do is not make it too much worse. They can't make it better. They can have a perfectly running, a uh, system that makes identical products for all intent and purposes, um, but it won't be more reliable than the design. Now, they certainly can make it worse. And so part of a good design that's designed for reliability is withstanding the variability that, that is going to occur from the variation of components and materials we're using and the variability of our manufacturing processes. Um, not to mention, the variability of how our customers use the product. So across the organization and out to our customers and end users is they, all of these parts of this process are gonna be making decisions on whether this is reliable or not. And creating a stable in control process that has uh, a high tolerance a uh, very small amount of variability is much more likely to make a product that's reliable than one where it's hit or miss. And you never really know from one product to the next if it's gonna work. So while all of these different parts of the organization have a role in making decisions that affect reliability, it is all part of design for reliability, right? In, in the culture part of our organization. Right. So you can think about this with about just about any part of your organization. You know, 
how would you answer this question? How does the uh, finance team affect reliability? Right. Well, what do they count and not count as part of warranty or as part of uh, customer service expenses? What, what's included and not included? And how does that tally impact the decisions we make on where to invest and not invest? And, and I'll leave this as, as an exercise. Fill in the XYZ with your, your favorite department and then an, answer the question of how do they affect the, the field reliability performance of your product? And I bet you you can find an answer to just about any, organ, any part of your organization. All right, so what is it that we do if we're running a reliability program? What is our, what's our role or function um, as we create a design for a reliability program? Right, primarily it's to make better, allow our team to make better decisions. Now, this is built on the premise that if reliability is, is determined by those decisions that are made during the development process primarily, and the development of the manufacturing process and the selection of, of components, vendors, material vendors, um, and policies around warranty and, and how we advertise and everything else. How do we help that all of those parts of our organization actually make better decisions? Well, part of that is, do they have the right information, right? Do they have an ability to translate a failure rate into dollars? Can they convert that into, well, what's the impact on warranty if this failure rate goes up by three points or something like that? Now, another thing, and one that I find is the easiest by far to do, is do the quick calculation. This is where one of your finance guys would be very handy. Well, what's, the, what's our cost of failure, right? What happens when a product fails? And well, it might be a phone call, so there's some time in the cust uh, um, customer support area or call centers. Then they might ship it back and there might be some failure analysis or there might be repairs and turning it back. If there's enough issues, if it hits high enough on the Pareto, then those failures might warrant a, um, a, a dictate a, a redesign and change to the production process. And that might actually add up to be quite a bit of money. It's not just warranty, but what is it what does it cost your organization when a customer says, hey, this thing's not working? And I mean, a, a general guideline is two and a half times retail price. Now, that adds up pretty quick. But you probably have somebody in the organization that has got an idea what's the cost per failure. And you could probably get a, a crude estimate as a minimum and you can refine it over time. But the idea then is to take that to the next level and say, well, what's the cost per unit shipped? What's the cost of failure per unit ship? So if I'm going to ship 100,000 units and I've got a 5% defect rate that we're experiencing or expecting, well, that generates a cost of failure for each failure times the, the 5,000 or so that we got. And that's a tally. And then divide that. Um, by the unit shipped by the 100,000. Now it's in the same uh, unit of measure as the cost of the CPU, of the switches, of the light bulbs that are in it or whatever, of the components. So if we have a bill of material, what you should look for is a line that says warranty or cost of failures. Now, anytime I've done this and I've done it many times, it ends up being either the most expensive, air quotes here, component on that bill of material or very close to it. So in a laptop once, the CPU itself was the most expensive component that they were buying to put into this laptop. But the cost of warranty was twice as expensive. So if that unit failed, it was going to cost us about five to $6,000 per failure and the failure rate at that time was relatively high and so the cost per unit shipped was 
still about twice the cost of a single CPU being purchased for a single unit. And so the idea was, is that that team was working on cost reduction uh, for the various components, but they weren't considering the component called warranty or cost of failure. And so if they would have just made the product a bit more reliable, they could have, yeah, they would have increased the bill of material cost, the typical bill of material we know and love, but it would have saved them much more money in the long haul and been more profitable if they made a product that just failed less often. And your mileage may vary depending on what's your cost of failure and what's the, um, how many units you're shipping and so on. But the idea is that you should have those kinds of numbers available because it gives you a, an ability to trade off with cost and time to market and, and lab time and everything else. Converts it instead of just a failure rate, now it's in money. It's, it's in a term we can use to, uh, a unit we can use to do trade-offs. Now, another piece of this, one of our roles in a, as a way to influence decisions is to help the organization not forget the things we've learned the hard way. If unit organizations evolve, uh, good engineers either move on or move up. Uh, younger engineers or new engineers are brought in uh, to learn the ropes, to, to uh, do the various amounts of tasks that need to be done. But it's uh, Henry Petrosky in his book, uh, Design Paradigms, talks about it takes about three generations of uh, engineering turnover for us, for that team to repeat mistakes. Now in the electronics industry, three generations goes pretty quick. Um, whereas in some products like Bridges, which he was talking about, it might take 30 years. But the idea was, is that I actually saw this at HP is that we would re relearn that ceramic capacitors crack about every five years. And when you get down to the details of it is the people locating the capacitors or, or laying out the boards or selecting the components, um, we're not aware of that. It was just a commodity component. We're just gonna populate it on the board. I have a, a form function or form factor I gotta fit into and I gotta use the real estate efficiently. And they weren't aware that putting ceramic capacitors near uh, screws that tie down your circuit board, for example, or areas that vibrate or, or flex quite a bit um, is generally a bad idea. And so how do we keep those kinds of things visible within the organization, increase the awareness on it? And I know I've got a webinar that I talked about golden nuggets and lessons learned. Um, I'll have to make a note to myself to put that link up in the, in the notes for this episode. But I, I'm not gonna repeat all of that other webinar here. But part of it is learning from what we've done well, learning from what, what doesn't work, learning about what kinds of technology works within our environment or not. And also what is, our, what is the environment that we're working in? All of those things help us to make better decisions. So speaking of that lessons learned, that often can feed into uh, guidelines or, or um, design uh, guidelines or manufacturing guidelines. It's, you know, we've got experience with this component or this material or this vendor and it works. So let's use those more often. And we know that this one and this one and this one don't work in our environment because uh, there's this particular particulate in the air in their factories that we, where we design these to be placed or they're susceptible to vibration or whatever, that it's not the best choice. But it needs to be very clear as the rationale because as our users change, as our environments change, as our markets change, um, we need to understand that those guidelines were for a specific circumstance. And so just saying don't use um, uh, components that source palladium, uh, for example, isn't as informative as we don't use that because a particular element of the environment in a major customer's uh, application 
seriously attacks the palladium and, and destroys it. Well, if we don't deal with that customer anymore, or we create another way to solve that problem that this feature of this particular component is something we want, but we can guard against it or mitigate that risk, then, then this guideline doesn't give us a clue as to is it still in practice or not. So be very clear with guidelines and internal documents as to including the rationale or the reason for that particular guideline. For example, keep out zones around uh, screws tying down a circuit board um, where you keep ceramic capacitors away is because they crack if there's too much flex, right? So if we're using a completely different technology, then that doesn't apply. So be careful how you write these things. Um, the other part is what we found at HP and is there was a pretty strong correlation from the teams and the organizations that got routinely had refresher courses on well, what does it take to design a reliable product? What are the types of tools and activities and when and why do we use them um, can be reintroduced and reinforced with training. And the organizations that routinely kept that part of, of in their training cycle form, one organization we worked with was doing it every six months. And many people went to over and over again to these training sessions. Uh, but the intent was to make sure that everybody in the organization was aware of all of these elements of DFR. There was a very high correlation to organizations that had a common language in a common framework to do DFR versus those that did not. And so that ended up being one of our best practices, of course, and would uh, encourage the rest of the organization to, to learn from that, uh, no pun intended. The other part that one of our roles is, is that for parts of our organization or say parts of our development team that are being proactive, are deliberately considering the impacts on reliability and so on, and end up with a successful product, well, that should be applauded or rewarded and celebrated. It's give them the recognition for doing what, what we're calling DFR because they're actually applied it correctly. Those that are just doing lip service to it, they don't get the recognition because they're not really incorporating those tools and techniques into improving their decision-making. Now, every DFR program is going to evolve and in, in improve or not improve. And so we need to get better at doing that. And that's the PDCA type thing, plan, do, check, act, and look for those areas and opportunities and make adjustments, move forward. Now, underlying all of this is that when an organization gets it, and they're being very proactive about it, we're not gonna have the big field problems that somebody has to rescue them from, be the heroic firefighter. But the heroic firefighter gets the accolades. So we need to change the culture of what we celebrate and what we recognize and reward are the things that really should align with, well, we got it right. We paid attention to it right from the start and those proactive behaviors that aren't flashy. So they're harder to recognize, but we need part of our role is to make sure that the, we support the appropriate behavior and, and mitigate and, and downplay is learn, looking at them as opportunities to make improvements for the behaviors that are, aren't proactive. How can we support doing the right thing and discouraged not doing that. So another role we have is we can demonstrate, how do you think about reliability, right? Well, one is that, well, how do I use this cost per unit shipped? And I gave you one example earlier, but how does marketing impact the reliability expectation? How does that translate and compare to what we're actually trying to design? Let's help the folks in marketing and sales understand the impact of their word choices, of the, of the, of the differential between what they're saying is going to happen versus what we expect is going to really happen, right? So it's, 
just setting those expectations is not just for our customers though. It's also within the organization. For example, if you've gone to much of any of the webinars that I've done, you know that I really like testing to failure when you need to test. And the idea there, of course, is that you learn something, you get something useful. So having a failure is what we expect. We can do something with that. So setting the expectations within your group is what is it do? Um, I'm sure many of you have heard uh, feedback that FMEA is going to slow our program down. Well, let's look at that a little bit. If we prioritize and work on the areas that have the highest risk to causing our program to be delayed, wouldn't that just naturally follow that if we actually solve those problems with the highest risk of delaying the program, that will minimize the opportunity to delay the program? Isn't that worth you know, the, the half a day or, or full day of work to understand what we need to actually work on. So, I mean, there's obviously a lot more to it, but the idea is that with each of our tools and activities, what is it that we're trying to actually accomplish? How does this connect to helping us make better decisions? And that's what I mean by setting expectations, right? The other part of this is making sure that there's um, reinforcing uh, structures within the organization, whether those are bonuses, reward programs, or accolades, or uh, features, or um, uh, training, and so on. How does all of this work together to reinforce balancing reliability performance with the other priorities and reinforcing the getting the information available and the training available to? allow our decision makers across the organization to take advantage of that information. And, and so it, every organization is going to do this slightly different, but it's, it's crucial that it ends up being a system that reinforces its ability to improve. And, and that's a key piece of this. All right. So I often pick on organizations that think reliability is, well, we just do a whole series of tests. We have environmental tests and life tests and so on. Well, okay, so what does that really do for us, right? If it's just to check off that we did these 47 different tests and we passed them all, well, so what is the value of that? But if the, each and every test or experiment we run is answering a question that enables our team to make better decisions, well, then it's got some value, right? Then it's worthwhile. So part of our role is to make sure that what we do, in, especially in those expensive life tests, is that they actually have a reason to be, up, to be done. There actually is a customer that needs to make a decision based on the outcomes of those experiments. If not, I suggest you just don't do those. All right, let's mention just a few of the tactics and then we'll wrap this up. Design for reliability is, starts well before you sit down and start designing. In the early documents, in the, you know, what is it we're trying to accomplish is well, what's our organization trying to accomplish with this particular product? Now, oftentimes I hear it's, well, it's a new platform or it's a cost reduction or we're extending the feature set for a new market. Well, those are all good, but what about the reliability aspect of that? What is it we're trying to do with this particular product in, in our uh, position in the market with compared to competitors? Uh, what is it our long-term objectives are? Not just this program. How does this program fit into those larger long-term visions or, or objectives? Now, if we've got a good, clear vision for the reliability performance of our portfolio of products, then, then we can establish a specific goal for this particular product. Now, that's one input. There's also many other inputs, but the idea is, is that we need to know where we're going and setting goals in a meaningful way makes a big difference. Now, from that goal, then we can set up a reliability model. 
the simplest are just simple series system block diagrams. If your system is more complex and has some re reliability redundancy features into it, well, then we need to model it appropriately. And there's many different types of models available um, from block diagrams and fault trees to uh, Petri nets and uh, Monte, uh, uh, Monte Carlo, no, yeah, Monte Carlo models. There's Markov models. There's, and I'm for sure I'm forgetting a couple of them, but we can find the appropriate model for our complexity of our particular system and deal with that. Now, the model itself is not the goal. The model is to help us understand priorities, understand interconnections and, and relationships within the system, understand what is the weakest link and what areas need improvement, those kinds of things. The idea then is to encourage, well, are we there yet, right? So we need to improve our ability to estimate reliability. Now, I'm not saying prediction on purpose. The, the, I feel it's been tainted by parts count prediction. We get 217 out or Telcordia and drop the bill of material in there and ignore a lot of things that really invalidate that as actually being useful. And we're done. No, we're not done. Early on, it's just a flat guess. Prediction's worse than a guess, in my opinion. So we use engineering judgment. We have similar products or experience with similar materials. We think it's this. Well, what don't we know? What are the areas that are uncertain or fuzzy? Well, let's, let's design an experiment or talk to the vendor or find better information, right? We might have to run an accelerated life test and but it's better to know that sooner than later so you have time to do it appropriately. But the idea is, is that the model can continuously update the information it's using to estimate the overall system reliability. And does that meet the goal or not? It should be an ongoing framework that the entire organization can use to understand where we are um, meeting our objectives for our uh, specific goals for this program. And, and we can use just engineering estimates or guesses to vendor data, to vendor test data, to field data from similar products to accelerated life tests. And, and it can be a good mix all the way across, but it should involve evolve as the program needs better information. Another set of tactics is understanding that everything varies. Right from the start, we're gonna put this in a nice pleasant meadow with a pond. Well, one thing we need to do is characterize what is the set of conditions? Is this temperate North America and Europe? Or is this uh, uh, more rainforest and this happens to be a clearing? Or are, is it four seasons or not? Is it near the ocean? Is this a saltwater uh, bay coming in from the ocean or marsh? Um, but just saying that it's going to be, here's a standard that says it's going to go from 10 degrees Celsius to 30 degrees Celsius, and that's our spec. Well, that doesn't help anybody, right? We know that locations where our customers use the products are not either at 10 degrees C all the time or at 30 degrees C all the time. Um, you know, I'm thinking office and home products are in around 20C a lot of the time. Well, what proportion and for how many hours per year are they at 10 to C? Well, how many and how long are they at 5C or at minus five, right? Just because we set a spec at 10 doesn't mean the customer is going to read that and, and only use that product when it's within its box specification. We need to know a lot about the environments and how the product is being used. Uh, and that means distributions of temperatures, of vibration profiles from the best is go measure it yourself, go get samples of measurements on it. How often do people actually push this particular button on our, our system um, and on and on and on. What is the set of stresses that will affect our product and the set of customer interaction with the product that interact that 
can lead to failures with our product. And let's characterize those. Let's understand how they work. In one complex product I work with, they had about 30 different failure mechanisms that they were concerned about. And so from each mechanism, they listed what were the contributing stresses for it. Now, some uh, failure mechanisms occurred if you didn't use the product very often. If it only was used, say, once a week or once a month, uh, then there were three or four failure mechanisms that were much more likely to occur as opposed to if it was used every day. So think about the range of use conditions, locations, and the sets of stresses that are applied. And if you really get into it, then you can work with your marketing and sales teams to figure out, well, where are your customers? Would, how many are going to be near the coast? How many are going to be at higher altitudes? How many are going to be wherever? And then weight your environmental profiles accordingly. There's lots of ways you can do some really fancy uh, work with physics of failure and, and understanding the use environments that you're going into. But these documents, they can stand aside from a particular program, but they certainly can inform that program so they can make better decisions. And another part here is, you know, and I mentioned risk management earlier, but one of our roles is to encourage people to ask those questions. What is it we know and what is it we don't know? You know, if we see a failure that we don't really understand how that occurred, well, root cause analysis helps us convert why did this occur to now we understand it if we do the RCA appropriately. The idea is, is that by proactively looking through where are the uncertainties? You know, we're using a new vendor and we really don't know how it's going to perform in our, in our environment. Well, that's an uncertainty, right? And does it warrant answering that question? Does it matter? Now, sometimes we don't even know if it's going to be an impact to failure rate or not. So it may need some level of investment to figure out, is this a risk or not? If we find out that, yeah, it's going to impact this particular failure mechanism, but we don't know when or how fast. Well, that leads to another tool to answer that question. Either the vendor or we can do an accelerated life test or some other mechanism or modeling or whatever to understand and answer that uncertainty. Now, risk management is really useful, and it's not just FMEA. It's really useful to understanding what we don't know and then bringing focus to those things so that they're less uncertain. And then the final uh, tactic here, and I mentioned this also earlier, is if you're going to do environmental tests or uh, life tests, is in a couple of names that are commonly used for what we do when we're in the lab and testing something, is really make sure that you have somebody that needs the answer to that test. Not that it just got done or not, not the binary check that off the list, but I want, I need to know, can I pour a bottle of champagne on top of this thing for 25 minutes and it'll still work? Will it still work after a week or two, two months? Will the corrosion get to it? What's the risk of, of doing this? So let's go run this design and run this test to answer that, that question as opposed to let's go do moisture sensitivity in really clean water, maybe even deionized water, for example, I've seen that done. I take it out, shake it off, it's still working, we're good. As opposed to understanding that the moisture in our user environment has lots of contaminants in it and can lead to corrosion after say a week. Let's understand the nature of what we're asking for. Does it, it's not useful to say, does it meet XYZ standard for moisture resistance? It's better to say, given our environment, will it survive? And what's the risk? Let's go design experiments that allow us to answer that meaningful question, not does it meet some standard? So the idea is, is that for every activity, every experiment we run, 
it should actually be connected to somebody's need to make a decision. And so you can design that experiment to help them get the necessary information to, to inform their decision-making. If it doesn't do that, it's hard to create a, a case for why to go do a lot of these kinds of tests and experiments that we typically run. So there's a few tactics um, to get you started. I'm sure there's more. And so, I mean, if you know of other common or best practices for design for reliability, you know, send them over, add comments to this field. You can find um, the recording on Ascendo Reliability or the podcast on your favorite podcast thing. We have show notes at uh, reliability.fm underneath the Ascendo Reliability webinar program. But the idea here is, is that there's lots of things we can do tailored to our particular circumstance. There's no one set of, we always do these tools. I really advise you to avoid that thinking. Just because it worked in the last program doesn't mean it'll work now. Has a good chance, right? But let's sure you do the homework is connecting what we're doing that they actually inform decisions. To me, that's designed for reliability. Now, one of the steps here is to think, sit back and think about what is the culture in your organization, right? If you're looking at implementing a design for reliability program, is your culture going to support that? Or is it just gonna say another flavor of the month and move on? Only you can answer that, I can't answer it for you. So step back, look at how decisions are made in your organization. What are the forces acting on them? And then how does reliability fit into that? And then where's your opportunities to make improvements? So hopefully this gives you a few things to think about and a couple of thoughts. I didn't get any interactions on this because I, once again, we had trouble uh, with Zoom and the keynote uh, and Mac system I got uh, rebooting. Still don't know whether I got it solved or not, but I was able to record this full up, just easy with the same basic setup I was using for the webinar. Um, I'd made a few changes, but now I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that it actually worked. So I'm gonna try, try running this a few more times, try to get a few uh, audience members to give it a try, make sure we can still uh, hold webinars with this setup uh, going forward. But anyway, if you've got a question, um, first off, appreciate you uh, chiming in and, and uh, signing up for these things and attending and participating when they're live. Uh, in this particular case, uh, please just send over an email or a note and I'll get back to you as quick as I can. Uh, also, we're going to have an ongoing series of discussion Q&A sessions, and it's going to be in the third Tuesday of the month at uh, 9 a.m., uh, U.S. Pacific time near San Francisco. And uh, there you can always bring your questions and comments. Um, and uh, myself and the other participants can chime in and hopefully frame out an answer for you or at least a direction or set of clues so you can move forward. So with that, we thank you. We'll see you next month. Hopefully I'll keep my fingers crossed everything works. And if not, we'll see, or, and I hope to see you next week. Uh, when we are doing the uh, uh, discussion live uh, Q&A sessions. Talk to you all later. Bye-bye.